Hello. <laughs> your uh, your mem- memory's been cleared. You got, yeah. Uh, a, uh, w- uh, you dumped your memory. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, you know, it's it's funny because, uh, you know, there is this trope about uh, people talking about Skype uh, on podcasts, but I was waiting for you just a few minutes because I was running a little bit late and you were just running a tiny bit later. Um, and I uh, I placed a, a, a Skype call test to a lovely <laughs> British lady. And, how did, she, how did uh, and she, she sound? She, she sounded fine. She sounded British. Um, she answered. Um, and then uh, I started leaving my test message to be played back to me. Um, and uh, it would drop. And it like happened like three times. I'm like, that's really weird. There must be something wrong with the Skype call testing service. And then uh, you called me and the same thing happened. So, uh, yeah. And then I rebooted my computer. And then there was a funny, weird pixelated uh, pattern that I sent you a photograph of. Yeah. That, I've never seen anything like that that's not you know not a black screen of death but it's a it's a black screen that has a bunch of uh, pixel steps yeah it was kind Uh, of a kind of a very attractive uh pixel uh pixel uh chicken scratchings (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. and really really interesting with a nice um your your live photos on um so i'm (laughs) I'm happy happy that everything uh happy that you you i can uh I can confirm for the listeners that you are uh, you're wearing a shirt. I cannot confirm pants. Um, and I mean, that's, uh, the same for me, uh, today, uh, so. <laughs> but to be honest, Ben, I cannot confirm to the listeners that you are wearing any clothes at all. It's it's a hundred percent true. I, I am, uh, podcasting from my, from my home, uh, studio, uh, studio a, uh, as it's known here in the uh, Chapman residence. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I, from all the other studios. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, I mean, when, when, the uh, when we have guests in, I want to make sure that they know which studio to, mm. to go, mm. go into. Um, and I, uh, I am wearing, uh, uh, multiple items of clothing. I've layered myself. In, in fact, I'm wearing, uh, two shirts, uh, a pair of shorts and, uh, and a baseball hat. Wow. Is it, is a baseball hat backwards or forwards? It's forwards. It's okay. forwards. It's, I, I find, uh, it's most comfortable with my headphones. Uh, uh, oh, so. Yeah, it's a oh, so, headphone so, accessory. All right, so you so you wear the hat uh, to make the headphones more comfortable, not because it's not a style statement. No, no, it's not. I don't don't ever uh, confuse anything that I do uh, to be related to style. <laughs> it is all for practicality. Um, well, and also the practicality. I am. Um, uh, I, I have to every day, Don. I either have to shower or wash my hair. I don't know what happens to me as I sleep overnight. But um, my my hair um, turns into like a, an, a kind of a crazy situation uh, every day. Like I'm not the type of person who can wake up and just go uh, show up somewhere. Um, it would look like uh, like Nick Nolte in that uh, famous arrest photo. Uh, it's pretty much what I look like every morning. So I wear a lot of wear a lot of hats, uh, but <laughs> both, both literally and figuratively. Ah, true, true. Um, also, not for uh, but tonight. Today, I'm wearing a hat mainly because I, um, I it, it feels nicer with my headphones. Yeah, now I'm looking at a lot of a uh, lot of photos of uh, Nick Nolte. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a hell of a that's a hell of a look. That's my look. Yeah, that's kind of what I uh, what I look for. Or look like sometimes, you know. That's interesting because I I do not always wash my hair, but I find depending on how close I am to a haircut, um, a, a little spritz of water and a comb, and I can pretty much become passable. But it sounds like that's not the not the case with you. 
No, not at all. And I, my, both my kids are, are fine. They, they have uh, long hippie hair mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and they wake up. I, I don't know if I just sweat or my hair is particularly greasy or, or as it's pronounced here in the South, greasy. Greasy. Yeah, there's a Z. Greasy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a it, – you, Don, you, I, I will um, – uh, I will bet that you've never uh, you've never seen me without a without a quick hair wash, and this is like a huh, full. Uh-huh. It's a it's a production. It's like yeah, wow. Because not every day I want to have a shower. Sometimes I play hockey and I shower like at one a.m. the night before, which I'm I am. Um, now we're into uh, shower safety talk. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I, welcome to personal grooming hour with Ben. <laughs> I really I I don't know about you, Don, but I like a shower before I go to bed. I like uh, I like going into that bed clean. I don't like uh, I don't like going in hot, and uh, so so sometimes I'll I'll have a shower really late at night, and then I just wake up and and instead of showering again, uh, I'll just wash my hair, and that includes me like dunking my head underneath the faucet in the bathtub, um, and then uh, using some shampoo and conditioner. I, it's a, it's a trick I've learned from. I, I literally this is how I was I was brought up. Uh, I think my parents both do this as well. I don't know if it's. Uh, if it's their British uh, uh, colonial upbringing or something, I, I think it's I think it's definitely a cultural thing, and I still remember the very first uh, very first scientific meeting that I ever went to as a graduate student was I will always remember this. It was in Clearwater, Florida. We drove there from Griffin, Georgia, and it was me and Larry Bouchard and uh, a student from Taiwan, Robin Chu. And, you know, I think, I mean, obviously we were poor graduate students and and so we roomed together and it it blew my mind that he took a shower before he went to bed. And again, maybe it was his, uh, his cultural uh, upbringing. Like that was just the normal thing for him. And, uh, and it just, I I think, I still think about that uh, to this day, uh, whenever (laughs) anybody talks about uh, what time they, what time they shower, whether they shower before they go to bed or not. That, so there you go. And I assume based on your, uh, uh, what, what you're saying, you're a shower in the in the morning kind of guy. Uh, you know, I pretty much shower whenever I need it, Ben, um, uh, which is at least once a week. <laughs> <laughs> morning, n- noon, night, whatever. Does, yeah, whatever. but ge- generally, I mean, usually, in, you know, in the morning I often, I have allergies, and so in the morning I often have a stuffy nose, and, you know, and, and the shower uh, helps me helps me get going. But, uh, yeah, so generally I'm a shower in the morning person, but I'm not adverse to a midday or, or evening shower, uh, but, it, but generally I'm a morning shower person. Well... Well, there you go. Uh, so, so personal grooming and shower uh, habits. This is uh, this is how we this is how we roll. Um, Better than talking about Skype, am I right? Oh my gosh! Right, right, and in, in pixelated steps. Um, I, I had a uh, I had a thought when you sent me that picture that this was this today's recording was not to be. Oh no, no, no! I, I, was, I I've I've learned to so you know and I, you get so spoiled with the Mac right because yeah. it just runs right and it, you close the lid and you go on to your next thing and then you open it up and and I do I do a bunch of stuff with my Mac including um, Dragon Dictate which is a wonderful piece of horrible crappy software that that crashes all the time but it lets me talk to my mac um and i think that that and that is always crashing and i think that that hoses the memory in the system that's a technical uh, thing you probably don't understand that hosing Hose, the memory hosing. in the system um well, I'm but, a, don, don i'm from canada uh, we, we know <laughs> all about off, hosing. Eh? take out yeah we're hosers. We're hosing memory. We're hosing everything. Hosing, hosing down the the rank. That's how we. That's how we freeze it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> um, and uh, and so it doesn't, you know. And I and just I just keep you know just keep running, and eventually something pretty bad breaks, and I and I can tell because just something that's supposed to be simple and work easily doesn't work. And today it was uh, today it was Skype, but I was I was ninety nine percent confident that uh, rebooting would would fix it. And uh, look, hey, here we are. Here we are. It worked. Um, I, uh, I I agree with you. I'm, I feel like I treat my computer fairly poorly in general. Like I don't shut it down a lot. I move it all over the place. Like, and I guess they're, they're built for, for that now. But thinking back to a time where if you just like banged the corner of a desk with your computer bag and that was like it for the Dell that I had before, um, 20, you know, 15 years ago, uh, before, before these Macs, yeah, it's, uh, they're, they're, they're just built much better. Um, these, these days, Mm -hmm. um, so we we did we saw each other again. Yes, yes. And this is probably the year of Don and Ben in person, <laughs> right? Like like I've I've seen you more in the last four or five months than I think I have in the last four or five years. I, you know I'm not keeping track, but I think you could be right. <clears throat> yeah. So we um and uh, once when the listeners listen to this, they'll know that we've already posted. A show that is yet to be posted yet because it's on it was on my list and I got I was on vacation. Uh, but last week you and I were at Michigan State Uni- University at uh, something that has multiple names. I think it's called the Global Food Loss Summit that is put on by Michigan State's uh, um, uh, College of Law or Department of Law. It's the Michigan State Law, um, and uh, we what a what an awesome time. Um, we were a uh, listener of the podcast. Uh, uh, Caitlin uh, Kasuli um, connected us with the organizers, and I think she's part of the organizing uh, group for this um, uh, this conference. And uh, she she got us on the on the agenda, and uh, we had a, a lo- I, I had a lovely time. I don't want to speak on your behalf, but I, I thought it was um, a really nice time. Just. Um, uh, I, I think a good uh, session on recording we did um, for about forty people who were attending the the podcast, and then we we got to hang out with some some listeners uh, afterwards, which was which was super cool. So yeah, it was it was it was very nice. So we went uh, we we hung out with Caitlin, and then we also uh, met uh, fan of the the show uh, Isabel. Um, uh, and Eileen, Eileen. Eileen. Oh my God. Yes. Why did I say Isabel? I don't know. Um, I knew it was an I name and I knew it was, yeah. I knew it was Eileen. Um, anyway, I'm, thank you for correcting me. I, and my apologies to, uh, to Eileen. Um, and, and so we, and we met, uh, a friend of Caitlin's and a friend of, of Eileen's and we, we hung out and we drank some beers and, uh, we had a, oh, and your, and your lovely wife, Danny was there and we had, a, we had a really, a really nice, a really nice time, uh, after the recording, but I thought the recording went well. Um, uh, it was, it was good conversation. The audio, as you probably, if, as you're, if you're listening to these episodes in order, um, you probably now know that the audio on the episode, uh, that we recorded live was not fantastic, but it's probably listenable. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, that's, that's what you get sometimes. So you get what you get, you know, that's right. Yeah, it happens. And, uh, but you know, something that, uh, we're, we're able to share with, uh, with everybody. Uh, and you know, there's some, there's, there are a few other podcasts that I listen to that, that do live shows every once in a while. And I, even, even with the, sort of professionally live stuff. It's, there's something a little bit different about that on stage, 
um, conversation. And I mean, the audio and the timing and, and, and really like sometimes the, the audience laughter, uh, you know, provides a little, it's a little different, um, listening, uh, experience. So anyway, yeah, so that's, uh, so that's what we did. And, um, and thanks to, uh, again, to Caitlin for, for hosting us and, um, making us a, a fantastic meal and, to Eileen for making us a couple of food safety talk, uh, uh, decals or decals. We call them decals. And, in, in at least that, again, when I shower, uh, in the evening, that's what my parents called, called them. But, uh, but I believe in, in the United <laughs> States, uh, they're called decals. Or something. They, they, they are, in, are indeed, uh, called, uh, called decals. I, I would have called it a bumper sticker, but. Sure. Ah, so could, a bumper sticker that I have applied to uh, my uh, MacBook Adorable. Oh, nice. Yes. Uh, so uh, you know, advertising, uh, uh, pimping for the for the show out there in in a Starbucks uh, near you. Uh, <laughs> maybe someone will come up and say, "Oh, I listened to that." Do you know those guys? Um, <laughs> so. Uh, also since the last time, uh, we didn't get a chance to do, um, a whole lot of feedback or sort of in stuff, uh, or intro for the last, uh, episode that we uh, recorded at Michigan state. So we're going to do a bunch of feedback today, but, um, I had a chance, uh, the week before after, um, uh, our previous in-studio recording, uh, to, to do a couple of talks, one at AFTO, uh, in Burlington, Vermont, and then another one at the Los Angeles Food Safety Advisory Committee. In uh, you'll, it might be surprising, Don. It's in Los Angeles, uh, huh. California. Yeah, it's uh, it's weird. Um, but uh, also met like five or six other uh, listeners who came up to me either before or after and, and said, hey, "I'll listen to the show." And and similar to what you know, some of the feedback that we get. Um, you know, or we have received over the, over the years, um, it's folks who in their job are moving from place to place. They're in a car, whether they're, um, a corporate auditor or, uh, an environmental health specialist. And, um, as they, as they have these 15 or, or 20 minute, uh, times in their car, they're listening to the podcast and it's, uh, it's super cool to, to hear about that. And, and, it, it, it's always fun every once in a while to hear from someone who says, um, you made me look at X issue in a different way because of your conversation, uh, on, on the podcast, or I hadn't been thinking about it. And, um, and one of the listeners, um, actually talked about, um, frozen vegetables in, uh, salad bars and just a, a question that had never is an environmental health specialist in Los Angeles. Um, and he, he had never really thought about, that the risk of slacking and growing the no heat step on uh, a potentially not ready food and and um, a salad bar that he talked about was in a retirement residence nursing home and he's, you know it, it was it was really cool for him to sort of step through and say that was something that that I had not received any information on in training um, and he had been a um, uh, environmental health specialist who had been has been for uh, for quite some time and and he just wasn't really aware of, of that risk. And, and it wasn't something that fit on, on the sort of traditional, um, uh, food code inspection, but he got he engaged into a conversation with the operator about what, you know, what do they do? Do they know whether it's ready to eat or not? And, and how, do they heat them before they put it out there? And, um, and so it was, it was cool that, you know, to get that, that kind of feedback and, um, the listener did not share his name, so I can't name check him, but let's just call him deep, deep Los Angeles. 
there you go. So yeah, and you know we and, yeah, and we're <laughs> we're always we're always happy for people to reach out to us um, with you know the you know what they what they get out of the show. So uh, absolutely. Um, so so let's uh, let's get right into it. Are you are you there? Let's do it. Okay, I am. Right. I had to mute. I I had to. Uh, oh, there's a dog around, and I had to close the door. And mm-hmm. as you know, yeah, uh, dogs all the way down. <laughs> so, so, um, so speaking speaking of some feedback, I want to um, uh, go to one from um, uh, a listener who says you can read my message but not my name, and we will uh, call this uh, individual because he didn't uh, provide. Um, a, uh, a code name, uh, this is deep share table. Um, and so, uh, his question is, I'm trying to locate the food safety talk episode when you guys discuss the risks associated with share tables in school cafeterias. Do you know where I can find it? My keyword searching skill are not enough to get the results I need. Um, and so I want to, I'm, I'm going to like reach back into your memory banks. Mm-hmm. I, I did. Have we talked about share tables on the podcast? Because I also couldn't find it. Do you know what a share table is? Yes, I do, and I think we did talk about it on the podcast. Um, but I, I also uh, did a little bit of searching for tags. I mean, so so basically, what a share table is is it's a thing where kids in school who take their school lunches can basically trade, uh, right? right? And and the risk here is not necessarily a foodborne. Uh, pathogen risk, foodborne disease risk, but rather an allergy risk, I think. Is that right? Yeah. So, and, and I've been, um, yes. Uh, but there, there's some other things that, that pop up with, uh, with share tables. And so, um, as I've been introduced to this, this world through some work that we do, um, at the state level with the North Carolina department of public instruction, um, share tables are, are often exactly what you said, where uh, a, a student comes in uh, doesn't want to eat all their lunch and doesn't want to throw out their, their, their food or, or take it, uh, take it home. And so they, uh, place it, you know, whatever carrots on this, um, on this table. And then other kids can, can grab it and leave something and, or, or, or not. Um, but in some jurisdictions, uh, what, what I've, um, encountered are questions about, well, what do we do with the food at the end of the share table day? So we, maybe we have two or three lunch periods and this, this food's sitting here. Um, can we donate it to, uh, a, a shelter or a soup kitchen or a pantry or, or something like that? And in, in our state and in, I mean, in lots of other states, you, you run into this interesting regulatory question, um, because it depends on where that table is and if it's part of the food service area and if it's under, under a, under control of a certified food protection manager. Um, and, and so we, um, we, we spent a, a kind of a, a little bit of time, uh, working back and forth, uh, my group and department of public instruction on some, um, some guidance for share tables and really, um, came down to, um, uh, sort of having those who are overseeing share tables have a sense of TCS and non-TCS foods. And so for those of our, our listeners who are not food code nerds like Don and I, those are time temperature control for safety foods or what was um, uh, once called in the U.S. and still is in, in lots of places potentially hazardous foods. These are foods that could support the growth of um, bacterial pathogens if uh, if held at, um, at at certain temperatures for, well, if time temperature combinations. Um, and so 
what we kind of aired on was if it's a shelf stable, non TCS food, share away and donate away. Um, but when you get into things like, uh, a de- you know, a deli meat sandwich or, um, uh, a, a cooked entree that might've been, um, reheated in a, in a cafeteria microwave, then now, now we're looking at, at food that, that needs to go to, to food waste. And, um, to your, to your allergen, um, point, um, that you shared with the listener, uh, Don, there, there also, um, was in here in, in Raleigh. And I thought this is when we had maybe talked about it, but this is what I couldn't find. Um, there was a, an issue, um, at a couple of schools related to cleaning and sanitizing tables, not just share tables, but cleaning and sanitizing, uh, tables. And, um, that's what the issue is kind of focused on, but it was really about a cleaning and allergen removal and for, um, allergen control plans for, for students who are, um, you know, highly allergic to, um, to, you know, tree fruits and, and not, uh, uh, tree, not tree fruits, tree nuts and, and peanuts. Um, and so share tables became part of that issue as well, because it, it was more about, um, the, the table itself, as well as, uh, someone who may, you know, as, as you highlighted, pick up a food and not know the, the ingredients. You know, if it was a, looks like a rice crispy square, but it's a rice crispy square that's made with peanut butter. Um, you know, how, how is the, per, the receiver of the share table item to, to know that? Um, so yeah, it was, uh, we'll link to, um, if I can find the share table, um, guidance document, uh, that we have, uh, as well as, uh, just a little bit of background on that, uh, allergy issue. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a, a, if you, if you Google it, there's an article from good housekeeping that comes up, uh, basically talking about share tables and another one that comes up from a school food, uh, uh, school, uh, school district rather, um, talks about what is a sharing table and then what are the rules for this particular school district. And which I think is it's, it's, if you had to start somewhere, it would be, it would be pretty good. So it's a PDF document and we'll link to it. And basically the rules from this particular school district are uh, prepackaged food, unopened wrapped foods and foods and beverages or food items with a peel. So unopened milk, cheese sticks, yogurt, etc. Um, but one of the other things it says is that no items from home can be placed on the sharing table. So let's say, um, you know, you, you have some fresh baked cookies that were baked at home. Those would not be allowed. But if you had a package of uh, cookies from the grocery store that hadn't been opened, like, you know, a single serving package of Oreos or something. Um, those, uh, they're not a sponsor. Uh, those could be, those could be placed on the table. So, um, which is, you know, again, you have to, you have to sort of navigate a number of food risk issues and, and that's one way to go with that. So. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting, um, situation and this is, I mean, something that I think you and I encounter quite a bit where it's the area that, that I know I like to be in, in, and I think you do as well, where you've got someone who's trying to do something that has a really, um, coming, coming from a, a good place on, on food waste or, or hunger. And, and there are, there are ways to manage this in a safe, in a safe way, um, that sometimes needs some interpretation or, or understanding of, of risk and risk reduction that, um, that, that folks who are, 
who are following the food code or standards by the book may not be comfortable with um, engaging in that. Like it's a, it's a, it becomes this gray area, um, which is you know really the the stuff that I like. Um, and so whether it's um, school gardens, community gardens, um, diverting food for food waste. And you and I spoke, we talked about this on a previous podcast, but we, we both spoke at a, at a conference here in North Carolina, um, uh, about a month and a half ago on, uh, the topic was all about that. This North Carolina food safety and defense task force focused on, um, food waste and, and that it's, it's t- difficult to uncouple food waste from, from hunger and just thinking about all the intricacies of it. And this is another, you know, another example of, of that. I, I think that share tables in, in my experience don't pop up just because kids want to trade food. It's, it's often, um, you're in a, in a school or in a, uh, maybe in a community where, um, where hunger and uh, and economics are are a factor, and um, and a you know a a kid who's maybe be aware of that with one of their um, classmates, um, you know, wants to to be able to you know they don't they want to they don't want to eat the food, so they're going to leave it for someone else who who does want it, um, and that's it, it. I think it's a fun. I mean. That part's not fun, the, uh, obviously the hunger, but it's it's a fun area for us to work in from a food safety standpoint because it's it's a little bit it's a little bit complicated and and there aren't um, uh, uh, it, aren't real real easy answers sometimes. Yeah, and I think you know a lot of these discussions that we're having around food waste um, because we want to reduce food waste are driving some really interesting discussions around food safety, and I think that we're going to continue to to see that. And I certainly welcome the I welcome the discussion because uh, there's not necessarily easy answers, but there are probably some answers that are that are better than others. Um, absolutely. Well, I will see if I can find uh, some stuff on uh, share tables, and we will uh, we'll share some some links on that. Okay. Uh, in the meantime, um, uh, the next piece of feedback I want to very quickly talk about is that someone who uh, does not listen to the show does not want us to read their name or their message uh, wants to sell um, ads on the podcast. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Ben? Yes. Or uh, no? I, yeah, I don't. I don't think so. Okay, so that would be that would be a no. And that's a, uh, we've had a vote, right? We've had that we had a, a vote. That was uh, two no's. Um, but they don't listen, so they'll never know the results. So okay, <laughs> um, moving on. Um, this is another good one, and this is one that again I was talking about Robin Chu and uh, Larry Bouchard. Um, so this uh, is is a great uh, bit of uh, listener feedback um, from uh, listener Logan, who says uh, share all details freely. Uh, Logan writes all recipes for homemade nut milk, basically uh, sticking nuts slash water in a blender and sifting through cheesecloth um, that I see online say it only keeps for a couple of days. Is this scientifically accurate? If nut type matters, I'd be most curious about almond and hemp. Um, and uh, that's a, it's a really good question. As I said, it took me back to my master's research days when I studied for my, for my MS degree with Larry Bouchard. I studied uh, making uh, yogurt, uh, in air quotes, out of uh, peanut, soybean, and cowpea milk. Um, cowpea is another name for black-eyed peas. Um, oh, now, see, I had no idea what cowpea was. Oh, okay. I- 
That's yeah. That's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. All right. Go, continue. Yeah, yeah. Continue on. I'm yeah. I, I did. I did not either. When I was a, a, a boy from the north who came who came south to, <laughs> to study uh, fermentation with Larry Bouchard. Um, and now, of course, uh, what I did was I sterilized those milks um, uh, in an autoclave and then inoculated them with lactic acid bacteria to do the fermentation. Um, there is uh, there there back in the late seventies, um, early eighties, there was a well established literature that Larry Bouchard and others were contributing to uh, looking at um, these nut or legume-based milks. Of course, this was back in the day before you could go into the grocery store and easily buy almond milk or soy milk or any of these other products. Um, my short non-answer to listener Logan was that there's a, a the shelf life really depends upon <clears throat> The starting concentration of microorganisms in the nuts. Uh, there's probably going to be batch to batch, and even probably nut uh, nut nut batch to nut batch, as well as nut to nut. So, in other words, peanuts might be different than almonds, might be different than soybeans, etc. Um, uh, you know, and of course, the intact nuts um, without water added last a long time. But once you chop them up and mix them with water, they obviously become uh, quite perishable. Um, you know, the 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 what Logan found on the internet was that, uh, quote unquote, they keep for a couple of days. Um, and I think that's probably a reasonable rule of thumb. Um, you could probably, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to go, I wouldn't want to push it much beyond that because one of the things that we often will find on all, all foods, but these foods included, would be bacillus. And there are some psychotrophic species of bacillus that grow in the refrigerator, and some of those can be produce toxins. Um, again, we don't see a lot of foodborne disease from bacillus, at least in this country. And so, um, but I mean, you know, so, so food safety risks are minimal. Oh, and also those bacillus uh, spores will survive uh, even boiling. So if you were to boil it, you would probably only just uh, activate those spores and then, and then you put them in the refrigerator and if you had some psychotrophic strains um, you might within a few days you might begin to have some some increase in risk so I you know a general rule of thumb for all leftovers and 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 all perishable foods is you know you really should unless that you know that they're very low pH or very low water activity um, a couple of days is probably the best that we can get I mean we could try to eke out a more scientific answer but the problem is that scientific answer would really depend upon the context that would depend upon you know like for for example, if we had some models for the growth of more microorganisms in these products and you could tell me the starting comp- concentrations, I could predict, I could give you a more accurate predict- shelf life prediction, but you know, you're not going to have that information typically. And so what we're often left with, with this kind of advice to consumers is, well, we're just going to give you some generic sort of worst case conservative advice. And that, that often ends up being a couple of days. So, so that's kind of my long non-answer confirming the non-answer that Logan found on the internet. Did you uh, uh, have anything else that you wanted to add on uh, homemade uh, nut milk? I do. So, ah. yeah. So what? Um, what? What if? So not. This is again a little different than Logan's question. But how, how do you? How would you handle this in a in a food service operation where someone might want to hold this nut milk at um, ambient temperature? Is, I, I would uh, that needs a variance and that needs a challenge study, right? So or, I don't, I yeah, I don't think it needs a variance, Don. Okay, let me let me uh, let me pitch something to you. All right, and this is uh, we we know uh, we've got some listeners who are food code junkies, and uh, this is calling out to Nora Nerd, who I could have just texted, but I'm going to talk to you and let her respond <laughs> on Twitter when she listens to this at some point, or whoever else. 
But if I if I follow, um, and I just sent you an, a, a recipe yep. uh, from thebalancedberry.com. And so essentially, here's how I'm going to make um, my my almond milk. I'm going to take almonds. I'm going to soak them uh, for at least four hours or overnight in water. Um, so now, and what this does, uh, according to the balanced berry is, uh, it hydrates them and makes it easier to strain and milk. Uh, otherwise you would end up with watery almond butter. Okay. So now I've soaked them. Makes sense. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, then you're to, uh, rinse them with fresh water. Then you blend them. So after your almonds are soaked, it's ready to go. It's time to blend. Uh, I like to blend my soaked almonds with water using a four to one ratio, uh, four cups of water per uh, four cups of water per cup of almonds. So blend and strain. Um, then you strain out the solids and you wring out the bag and get all the milk and then store it. That's it. You have almond milk. What is missing in any of that um, process that I think would then kick it to requiring a variance is any heat step. So if I if uh, almonds them on themselves by themselves are a non TCS food, I am adding them to to water but without heat, so it's not a heat treated plant food. And I I would guess that um, and based on the stuff that you shared that it. It, that almond milk or the nut milk itself, once it's made, uh, probably can support the growth of pathogens if if they're around, um, and that it would would be a um, a TCS food, but it just doesn't qualify as a TCS food as per the the food code definition. So I don't think there's a way. I mean, as an operator, I don't think the food code comes into play. If I wanted to make almond milk like this and then just leave it out at ambient temperature for like a week. And maybe do something with it because I'm not, I'm not doing like it's it's a non it's a non TCS food all the way all all the way down. Well, until until you chop it right, because there is there is something, and I, I'm not a, a an expert on the food code, and we'll, again, we'll let we'll let neuro nerd or others weigh in. But my understanding is, once you take a food, let's say an apple, okay, um, and once you cut that food, that apple now becomes a TCS food, and I would say the same thing is true of almonds. Once you blend those almonds. Um, and I would, I would wonder even if you're soaking them, um, if, if there isn't even some, you know, on a microscopic level, there's even some penetration of the, the milk into the internals of the almonds and then maybe some movement of nutrients, et cetera. But for sure, in my mind, once you blend them, um, now it becomes a TCS food. I, I agree. Like, I agree with you on the, like the support. I just mm-hmm. don't think it meets the definition because I can chop, I can shred a bunch of carrots Right. Or I can chop a carrot and that doesn't make it a TCS food. Sure. It does. No. Yeah. No, I think it, it does. I don't, well, we'll, we will, uh, we will debate this, uh, with, with others later on. Okay. Um, but yes, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's still a raw, it, uh, a raw plant food. Cause the only TCS foods that, that we have that are called out are, um, you know, tomatoes and leafy greens and those cut, cut tomatoes and, and cut leafy greens and melons and sprouts. But um, other other plant foods um, that even even when cut, uh, they're not um, in you know in in my in my understanding they would not just automatically become TCS foods. So cut cucumbers are not a TCS food. That's I ludicrous. Believe, I, know, no, I know. I know. I I think that that well, if that's the definition, the definition needs to be fixed because it's so it's, we have a job, yeah. right? Like that's that that this this is something that was on my radar before 
the CFP stuff last year. Cause I think I had a question about this. Actually it might've come from NeuroNerd that I had asked you and, and Linda uh, and Michelle about Linda Harris and Michelle Daniluk about cash. I think it was cashew milk that was in an operation. And, and so it was like, no, it is, if it's not heat treated, it, it, it is a, a product that you would look at um, from a scientific standpoint and say, yeah, that's, that's likely to support growth. But uh, at a local, um, a local health inspector level, it doesn't check any of the boxes. Yep. Yeah. Well, and and I'm looking now at the when we were talking before about share tables. Uh, I linked to um, uh, a, a National Restaurant Association, the NRA, the ones without the guns, um, uh, and uh, it's called uh, and their site is is restaurant.org um, and and uh, on TC uh, recognizing TCS foods. And you're absolutely right. They specifically call out. Uh, sliced melons, cut tomatoes, cut leafy greens, sprouts and sprout seeds, also baked potatoes again, because they're, they're baked. Um, and that's it. And that's, 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 that's that's ridiculous, right? So carrots, carrots, uh, could support the growth if they were cut, uh, cucumber. Absolutely. We've got data in my lab right now that shows that salmonella grows on cut cucumber as it's not surprising. It's, it's actually exactly what you would expect. Um, so that's, uh, that's crazy. So, so yeah, we've got, all right, good, good. Let's, uh, hopefully folks will will weigh in on this, but, um, uh, on Twitter and feedback, but I, I agree. I think this is something that, um, especially as we see, I mean, just coming, coming back to Logan's question, I I think we, you can't go to a coffee shop and not find almond milk or, or soy milk. And I, and I bet that there it's a subsection of those coffee shops that are making their own because that's a that's a marketing tool right like like now not only am i giving you this this almond milk as part of your latte but i'm also going to give you the option for the stuff that we made in the in the back of the house and and, and we're um we'll I don't, you know we'll probably we'll have an outbreak and the cucumbers is a great example because we've had we've had outbreaks. we've had outbreaks yeah, yeah. yep so. Well, uh, well, but the problem is we've had outbreaks, just like with tomatoes, we've had outbreaks with cut and with un, uncut. Uh, right. And, and well, and we can add add to that. We can add uh, peppers, uh, right? Uh, yep. Sweet, sweet uh, uh, bell peppers to that. Yep. So, and there and, and there are tropicals as well that I know uh, Michelle has uh, has done some research on salmonella and I think in uh, mangoes uh, and something else where where you know we would look at them as as, uh, as fruit and not meeting the definition of, uh, TCS food by just like, oh, well it's fruit, but, but actually looking at the pH and, and looking at the growth, being able to support growth at, at ambient temperatures, it's, it's probably a, a, a type of food that we need to pay attention more to in food service. Well, and let's, let's look at, uh, let's look at candied apples and listeria, right? Yeah. You just stick, you get listeria in there, you stick a, um, um, uh, a stick into the apple and you've punctured, you've, you've, you know, you've liberated nutrients from the cut plant cells and you get listeria growth. I mean, Kathy, Glass has a paper that shows that. So absolutely. Well, and here's here's another um, t- you know, type of thing that that I I think is exciting for us when you look at how um, how retailers and uh, food safety folks manage these risks outside of the food code, right? Like like I, I'm I know after talking to some retailers after the candy apple um, uh, um, or um, caramel apple linked outbreak. Uh, uh, back in 2011 or 2012, whenever that was, that spurred uh, Kathy to do that. 2014. 2014. I'm looking. I'm looking at the paper right now. Good I don't job. know that. Yeah, uh, and um, that 
that there are retailers out there that that either stop selling caramel apples that were unrefrigerated or um, or started date coating their and, and or started date coating their refrigerated caramel apples for list area risks. Right, the food code doesn't tell them to do that, but they made good risk management decisions. So say, you know, same kind of thing with uh, with the cucumbers and and um, uh, in nut milks. I think where there are probably some some really good operators out there that would just look at that and say, well, yeah, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave it at ambient temperature because I'm worried about it. Right. Right. So cool. Cool. Thank you, Logan. So uh, I want uh, I want to to give some um, important uh, salmonella and egg uh, follow up. So we had a uh, a really good uh, discussion um, on Twitter um, uh, about salmonella in eggs, and uh, in, in conversation with uh, with uh, Ruth Petran, who was asking for some feedback on where those numbers came from, and we talked about that. And one thing um, that just came across my desk when I was looking for something else. Was was an article um, from uh, David Atchison um, uh, entitled "Salmonella: The Risks and Tips to Avoid Getting Poisoned" uh, from August twenty second, uh, two thousand and fifteen. And in this particular article, uh, Atchison uh, promulgates what we now to know be to the incorrect information of uh, one in uh, ten thousand eggs uh, being the the risk of contamination. And we and we now know it's actually three in ten thousand, or <laughs> one in three thousand three hundred and thirty three um so uh, i just want to say you know david you gotta you know you should listen to this podcast and you should update your update your information uh yeah absolutely uh and uh, we did get uh other follow-up um on this uh math uh issue uh from 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 a friend of the podcast who i don't think she uh let us say who her name was but um she knows who she is that that she and i both had the same thought about uh uh one in 3333 or one in 3000 eggs yeah i'm going to still say 3 in 10000 cuz that's uh, fine. that's you know that's just what i that's the way i roll then you do you you do base don you you work in base uh base 10 right yes i do i do so that that's that makes sense that i'm I, i'm i'm with you okay. we're we can all we can all do the uh calculations in our head i just wanted to make sure i got it right <laughs> Hey, so one one thing, uh, additional piece of follow up, um, uh, which is we and we talked about this. Uh, I think we we talked about this in real life. I'm not sure whether I guess maybe we did talk about it on the podcast. Um, but it's uh, it's uh, John Roderick's wonderful show uh, Omnibus, and we in particular talked about the uh, Tylenol. Um, uh, murders uh, episode, but one of the important points, and I listened to that episode, and, and everybody who's interested in product tampering um, should definitely listen. But one of the things that that they talked about in this episode is the fact that terrorists in Japan, um, in fact, use uh, vending used vending machines um, and extra free drinks at the bottom of vending machines to cause people to get sick. And so I just want to say, Ben, um, not that I'm expecting an apology from you um, for that, you know, for for criticizing my uh, my paranoid belief that uh, an extra uh, uh, bottle of water in the vending machine might be the work of terrorists. But I just want to point out to you and to the listeners that that was a real life scenario that actually did occur. So I'm right, not, right. I'm maybe I'm not quite as paranoid as I seem. No, you're, you're not. And that was, I think the, uh, one of the, the more fascinating, uh, anecdotes and stories that, uh, John and, and Ken talked about in that, 
um, in that episode. If I'm, if I'm not, I think I'm correct on this one that it was, um, led to, I, some, you know, some deaths and illnesses, but also one of them, uh, being the police chief in, in the city. I don't know if it was Tokyo, uh, but who could not crack the case on who was, um, contaminating these bottles of soda. It wasn't water. Uh, but, right. uh, but, but that was, it, it was really, a really, really interesting episode. In fact, my introduction to the omnibus, uh, podcast and, and as we drove, Back from uh, our Michigan and, and Ontario trip last week uh, for like 14 hours over a two-day period, I we listened to like nine omnibus uh, episodes because nice. there there's some like kid-friendly omnibus. Uh, yeah, it's not like a lot of other John's other shows where there's cursing and stuff. This is a uh, one that is designed for for family consumption, and you know, and 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 Ken and John are just so wonderful, and they are so able to get lost in the weeds and for the most part make their way back i mean uh yeah and again another one if you're if you're interested in food uh, i would also highly recommend the boysenberry um as a great episode on food and and berries and and usda and how um cultivars you know are grown and developed uh yeah. really, really great that was another fantastic episode so uh, in your recommendation we listened to that and um like a really cool story of um Like how the short the short one uh, sentence uh, synopsis is how berries led to Disney. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Which is yeah, which was which was awesome. Uh, I will uh, I will call out the other uh, couple of episodes that I really loved. Uh, One on the Rachel, the haircut from uh, Friends, Jennifer Anderson's haircut from the 90s, which John argues the last true American haircut style. Um, and, uh, Millie Vanilli, which was a fantastic episode on, uh, one of, one of my favorite, uh, bands from, uh, the early 1990s. And yeah. I didn't, didn't, didn't know their relationship to another one of my favorite bands that I didn't even know, uh, were not really a band and that's, uh, Boney M. Yeah. I, I, I listened to the Millie Vanilli episode. It was very good. I did not listen to the Rachel episode, but that might actually be one, um, that I could get my, uh, my wife to listen to because, uh, she's a big <laughs> friends fan and also a big uh, fan of ladies hairstyles. So, um, that might be a good, uh, entree for her, uh, into the world of the omnibus. It's, it's the, it's the most surprising crossover, <laughs> uh, since Avengers, uh, age of Ultron. <laughs> uh, um, so cool. Um, what a, uh, what a, yeah, a great, great podcast. And, and, you know, I, I, one of the things that, that you and I, I talked about, um, at, at Michigan state is, you know, how we get into this or how we got into this. And one of the things that I really value about the podcast world is just listening to other podcasts on how they do it. And, and there are some fantastic storytellers out there better than, better than us. Um, so I don't, I love kind of, uh, promoting, you know, I, I was, I was so obsessed with that, um, Tylenol murders episode that I told like my friends that I went to university with family members all about it. Like you should go listen to this, this podcast. I told my dad about it. Um, I, I love, I love getting excited about, um, uh, other, I don't know, other, other stuff that we can consume out there. So it, yeah, go check it out. I can't be more excited about it. Very good. Very good. Yeah, I mean, if you're, I mean, but don't don't like sacrifice listening to this show because I mean, no. th- you know, this is uh, this is right. If you're listening to this, this is right in your wheelhouse. I mean, that you know, that's a good show. But I mean, here here's the thing: like Roderick has like so many shows now, and you and I, we just have uh, this one show between us. So we just got the one. We just got the one. Um, 
So uh, moving to uh, some more follow-up uh, from uh, Deep New England, uh, a uh, one of our most frequent uh, follow-up uh, um, uh, providers. Uh, message is, um, well, I can't. We can't tell the message, <laughs> Don, because as I look at privacy, it says don't reveal my name or message content on the air. Uh, so. <laughs> So, so let's just leave it at, at this. Um, I think that there are, uh, how do we even get around this one? Um, Don, can you think of anything where you could create a a contest for people who work in, in restaurants (laughs) around food safety? I think that's a great idea. Um, you know, the IFT uh, Student Association has the College Bowl um, for students of food science. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, people should uh, people should um, you know uh, have a figure out a way to have a food safety contest. Uh, uh, you know, for for people. For people. Yeah. And if you're interested, we'll put you in touch with somebody yes. who wants to we- do the same thing. I actually had something on this, so we we do quite a bit. Um, ah. I, I've talked, yeah, I've talked a little bit about the certified food protection manager uh, class that that we created um, in and have delivered in North Carolina over the last four or five years. We it's called uh, Safe Plates, and um, this you know, this uh, program is uh, gets people ready to write the certified food protection manager, um, exam and, and the kind of history of this, this program was I, I delivered serve safe a bunch of times in the first five or six years that I was in, um, in my position in North Carolina. And, um, I, I, serve safe is, uh, you know, the, the Kleenex of, um, certified food protection manager programs. Uh, and there are others out there, but it's, it's definitely the one that, that is out there the most. And I, 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 as much as I think it's a really serviceable class, I I wanted to create something that was more based on storytelling and the food safety info sheets and barf blog that, um, that, that I've been, had been working on. So we, we developed this, this class and, and sort of went into game theory and, um, theory of, uh, 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 plan behavior. behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And lots of different things to create this. And so there are a lot of hands-on, um, supplemental activities, including, uh, a bunch of games, um, and quizzes and, and, um, something that I learned from one of our former guests, Gordon Hayburn, um, who's done a lot of training and workshops throughout the world in, in lots of, uh, different settings in his many, um, in his, with his many hats. Um, he he and I delivered a a workshop in in Dubai maybe seven or eight years ago, right around the same time we were developing this class. And he said, you know, when you're putting on a workshop, always always award points, like a whose line is it anyway kind of kind of thing, where people like to compete with each other and just make it up. So if someone else answers a question, you tell them that it's worth ten thousand points and that they're in the lead, and. <laughs> And then someone else answers a question the next time and it may be an equally uh, difficult question or they volunteer something and say, you know, that's, that was great. You did a good job. That was only one that was only worth six. And so you're not, (laughs) (laughs) so always award points. Everything, everything's made up and the points don't matter, Ben. Exactly. Everything's made up. The points don't matter. Always award the points. Uh, but but it, you know, games and competition are, are a good way to engage uh, learners. So, um, so we do we do quite a bit of this, and then we also, um, uh, I one of the, one of my. 
thoughts, um, and this is something that we could uh, could gamify, uh, or we we have in in the past. One of my thoughts as I was building this course um, was we really wanted to make sure that people understood the importance of cleaning up vomit because uh, you know a big component was was around uh, noro and. Um, uh, lots of folks in Leanne Jacobs's program were investigating spread of vomit and had a vomit machine. Um, and, and so we simulate a vomit event and then get people to, to guess how far the droplets are and then talk about aerosolization. But it's, it's probably the thing that makes the most, um, social media around our class. Cause as our agents deliver it, they usually, um, either Snapchat or Instagram, a video of someone simulating this vomit event, which is mixed up oatmeal uh, with a pretty good consistency and throwing it on the ground. And then we mix it with glow germ to show, you know, turn the lights off and then use the UV lights to show how far it spreads. Very um, cool. From, yeah. So, but that becomes a game. So, so yeah. Uh, if you have any other ideas for games, we have someone who might be interested in it and we'll connect you. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and then, uh, so the next piece of feedback um, uh, is uh, <laughs> from from a listener who says, uh, please feel free to call me whatever you want uh, for inspiration. I'm short. The Osprey is my favorite raptor, and I love the <laughs> library. And so I have dubbed this listener short Osprey librarian. Um, and uh, her, her feedback is, uh, so I was introducing my friends. Uh, to the my friend to the wonderful world of food safety podcasts on the way home from camping um, and she made an interesting point um, about how backpacking food safety is easier because the meals are dehydrated um, her her friend actually uh, never uses the dehydrated meals and she's looking for uh, basically other foods uh, nor- quote unquote normal food items uh, sharp cheddar cheese uh, rice vegetables peanut butter fruit granolas tortillas canned uh, tomatoes and meat um, obviously that that makes sense uh, what are the thoughts on food safety for these situations where food is taken out into the backcountry without temperature control for multiple days um, granted the food that's in the packs the longest would be the bread the peanut butter jelly pepperoni canned products rice etc not the fresh vegetables um, yeah so uh, uh, and she her friend says she's heard of uh, some people on these trips getting food poisoning Um you know, those are all uh, really, you know, good uh, choices. So I don't think um, uh, I don't think that there's anything in that risk that list that's particularly risky. Um, I know one of the things that we always talked about a lot with backpacking and the Boy Scouts was water filtration. And again, I think we've recently, not recently, but in the past, talked about the risks of backcountry water consumption and whether you should filter or not. And I think uh, I'm very firmly in the camp of filtration, even if the risk is is low. Um, so I would say, you know, all of those foods. Uh, certainly peanut butter, uh, low risk, um, fruit, as long as it's in the, um, still un, unwrapped, um, you know, the oranges in the skin, uh, bananas in the, in the peel. Um, those are low risk, uh, rice that's dry is low risk. Uh, cheese will spoil, um, and will go moldy, but if it's made from pasteurized milk, um, as long as it, I mean, and, and again, there's evidence that suggests that you can cut the mold off, um, you know, science-based evidence that if you can cut the mold 
mold off if you're worried about mold. Um, but you know, tortillas, I mean, we, tortillas are sold, um, in the restaurant or in the, in the stores around me, um, unrefrigerated. We, after we buy them, we refrigerate them so that they last longer, but certainly tortillas, um, would be, and bread are perfect examples of foods that, that stay shelf stable for long periods of time. Uh, granola also shelf stable. So, uh, you know, and then, um, anything that's in a can, obviously, you know, it's kind of heavy, um, a lot of it, and you don't want to carry the cans around if you can avoid it. But, um, you know, uh, tuna fish in pouches, um, you know, basically canned foods that are in pouches are, are quite low risk. So all of those things are perfectly, uh, perfectly fine. Um, we, I think we talked about if you have uh, meat uh, that you want to consume, let's say the first day or the first night, uh, if you start all, that meat off frozen, um, it will thaw during the day. And then by the time dinner time rolls around, you can have a nice steak or, or, or something. Um, uh, you know, so th- those, I, so I don't think, um, I don't think that there's anything on that list that would be especially high risk. Um, did you have any other thoughts on backpacking food safety? No, but I this I want to transition us uh, to another question that relates to this, and I have a backpack food safety uh, question for you. And mm-hmm. this 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 one um, came from um, uh, Twitter uh, a listener, Twitter follower, um, uh, Ed or Ed Sanders, mm-hmm. um, and who said you can use my name or call me Deep Ignorance, your choice. And I I don't think this is not an ignorant question. This is a really interesting. No, question. great question. Yep. Yeah. Which is, you know, you mentioned taking oranges on a, a, you know, uh, backpacking. The question was, do I need to wash oranges? I never thought so, but now it occurs to me that I could pass something from the outside to the, uh, to the fruit while peeling and handling them. And so, um, yeah, these, these peeled, um, uh, fruits and, in, in backpacking, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on, on that? So yeah, uh, the orange itself, uh, isn't, isn't a problem, but is it a, is it a good thing to take, you know, could, could I be spreading, um, maybe salmonella from the outside of that peel, uh, to the, to the orange itself? And, and should I pick something else? Maybe a banana? I don't know. Well, yeah. So, so, so two, so two <laughs> points. you up there. So two po- yes, thank you. So two points. So number one, um, the oranges that you take, the, 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 the aspect of un- non-refrigeration and of going backpacking does not really change the risk, right? So the risk is the same no matter what. Um, uh, and then of course, um, I, I, I think the reason why you're teeing me up for this is that I did uh, publish a paper, um, with a uh, friend of the show, uh, Michelle Daniluk and, uh, Lori Friedrich, who's her technician and my uh, graduate student now, now postdoc, uh, Jin Jung, entitled Quantification of Transfer of Salmonella from Citrus Fruits to Peels, Edible Portion, Gloved Hands During Hand Peeling. And this was some data that Michelle and Lori had collected. And basically the, the bottom line is, yes, if you have salmonella on the outside of your orange peel or outside of your citrus product as you peel it, you are going to transfer some um, level of salmonella to the fruit, um, at least if you're peeling with gloved hands. And I've got to think that, and of course they had to do these experiments with gloves to minimize the risk to the experimental subjects. Uh, but I suspect that you would see the same uh, transfer or roughly equivalent transfer if you peeled with bare hands. And so uh, the bottom line is is that if you or if you peel anything, if you peel a um, well, I guess a I guess a banana, you're you're touching the peel and then you're eating the fruit. Whereas a citrus, you're you're definitely touching the the the, the part that you're going to eat. But but basically, bacteria can cross contaminate, right? And they can cross contaminate from the outside to the inside if you're cutting or slicing, but also if you're hand peeling. And so. 
Um, but in terms of uh, deep ignorance's question, um, it's a great question. And no, there's no, there's nothing higher risk uh, about about oranges, right? Uh, and they'd be a perfectly fine food to take, uh, whether you were backpacking or not. Um, uh, be, you know, and if, if you're worried about cross contamination, you can wash your hands before you peel the oranges. And yeah, I suppose it wouldn't hurt to to peel the, uh, to to wash the oranges, but it's not a practice that I do routinely. Um, you know, and I, and we did research on it that showed that you yeah. get transfer. And and again, I know, and I I don't want to talk too much about the citrus industry. It's not my area of expertise, but if you look at some of their um, production practices, yeah, there's a possibility that that because of their production practices, they could get pathogens on the outside of those fruits. Um, they do tend to die relatively quickly in exposure to, to sun, sunshine and UV radiation and, and drying, et cetera. We're trying to build some models for that right now. Um, had a graduate student that worked on that. Uh, we're now maybe going to be collaborating with some folks from FDA to, to kind of push that paper over the line a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's, um, you know, there's a risk there, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not one that I worry about. So yeah, I mean, if, I guess if you, if it concerns you, well, yeah, sure. Rinse off the outside of your oranges or wash them. But for the most part, it's, again, it's not, it's not a practice that I follow. We don't know of any outbreaks. Um, is there a risk? Yes. Yep. Yeah. It's and a small the, one. Right, right, right. I, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I would, um, I, I, I think the risk changes if I'm making orange juice, um, and, and we have seen, uh, illnesses linked to that. Um, and, and then in turn, you know, squeezing. So, I'm, so now, now here's a really fanciful, uh, backpacking expedition, right? So I'm taking oranges, I am making fresh squeezed orange juice while I'm, uh, you know, for my mimosa that I'm, uh, that I'm camping with and I don't, uh, add it all to the champagne and I want to save some for later in the day. And I'm going to continue to backpack, uh, with that, with that orange juice and, and hold it for, for a while. I think now we have a, a little, in, you know, a little more risk, but, but as, as you said, um, not, not seeing public health burden in, in the form of outbreaks or, um, individual illnesses, uh, makes it seem like this is a pretty, pretty low risk, um, uh, process, process, product, whatever, whatever we want to talk about in peeling an orange. Um, but, but not, not zero risk, but not, I mean, there are other things to worry about, I think, um, in a prioritization of, of risks. Well, and, and, you know, this is, this is something that was, a a, a quite came as quite a realization to me. If you look at the literature on apple juice and apple cider, and I think the same thing is true with oranges, actually, if you were to fresh squeeze that juice and then you were to store it unrefrigerated in your backpack, the longer you store it, Actually, the lower the risk because mm-hmm. apple juice and um, uh, orange juice are low pH, and so pathogens do not grow at the low pH that's typical in apple cider or in orange juice. And so, the way to promote survival of pathogens is to refrigerate that juice. And so, the best thing that you can possibly do is to hold it uh, at room temperature or even higher because the, then the inactivation kinetics are going to be. Um, even better, and so yeah, it's uh, it's counterintuitive. I mean, that's it, good. Yeah, so so yeah, so so even even for, again, and, and so and I think that the outbreaks with apple cider and the outbreaks with fresh squeezed orange juice came more from 
what was the nature of the environment that those apples were stored in prior to being made into cider or what was the nature of the harvest and handling of those oranges and they were harvested and handled in a way that promoted uh, some pathogen growth in those in those products or or pathogen persistence in those products right and so yeah. and and actually e coli will gr- this is weird this doesn't make any sense right so e coli will grow in uh, a cut apple but they may uh, only survive and in fact over time die in apple juice and so i mean obviously there's some things there that don't quite necessarily add up but but that's what the science says I wonder. I wonder how much um, now that you now you, you um, we're talking about that. I wonder how much competing microorganisms are a factor in that, right? So you've got the inactivation, um, you know, kinetics, but also that they're trying. There's lots of other stuff that's that you know that's probably growing that are that's just out competing those pathogens as it gets warmer, right? Like it's a better environment for everything um, to grow. Yeah, it could be. I, and again, I don't, I don't know without wading into the literature. And some of this, this apple cider literature goes back a long time. I mean, here's a, a, a 1994 paper from Chuck Casper, uh, uh, his lab on uh, acid tolerance and survival in apple cider. And so uh, basically it shows that uh, they, they do survive and the acid tolerance, acid tolerance strains uh, survive better, uh, but they don't appear to, uh, they don't appear to grow uh, again, depending upon, uh, depending upon the temperature. And I guess in this particular paper, they only studied, I don't know, they studied a couple of different temperatures, but, but anyway, it's, uh, so it's, it turns out it's complicated, Ben. Hmm. Well, there you go. Cool. Um, so I had something else uh, to talk to you about. Um, can read my message and not my name. Uh, and uh, we're, the name that we've uh, decided for this listener is Salty Sloop. <laughs> um, Salty Sloop writes, hello, guys. Love the podcast. Great listen for sanitarians in between stops. Uh, really helps with the science behind all the behaviors we encounter and explaining the science to people. Um so, uh, he goes on to say, I hope you could help me with science of something my colleague ran into, which we found interesting. A food service establishment we inspect recently, re-inspected recently changed their menu. The facility has added a new appetizer to their menu, which contains ahi tuna and is served on Himalayan pink salt block, uh, a Himalayan pink salt block for presentation. Salt blocks are food grade. The appetizer is prepared in the kitchen and served on the salt block to the customer. After the appetizer is served to the customer, the salt block is removed from the customer's table and taken to the kitchen. After the salt block is returned to the kitchen, it is wiped off and placed on a drying rack to be used on for the next customer. Our immediate concern was no wash, rinse, and sanitize being completed on the salt blocks um, and the reserving of the blocks. Uh, as of right now, we're not allowing this practice. So um, what, uh, what, what, what do you think about uh, that process, uh, Don? Well, I think it's it's probably not a best practice. Um, I think that there is for sure a cross contamination risk. Um, I think that you have to ask the question, you know, what pathogens could be coming from the food? Also, what pathogens could be coming from the um, the customer? Right. So, if somebody is sick with norovirus and handles that salt block with their norovirus laden hands or hepatitis A and then handles it, uh, there's a risk. Um, yeah, and and there is no uh, there is no cleaning and sanitizing step. Uh, I suppose. 
I could imagine some sort of a complicated step where you would um, take the salt block and you would uh, add water and then boil the water and then dry it again to remake the salt block. But uh, a more simple, straightforward uh, thing would be just use disposable salt blocks or, or single-use salt blocks. Now, I think pink Himalayan sea salt is expensive, and so I understand why the restaurant is, is wanting to reuse that. Um, you know, there's also an allergen cross-contamination risk. So depending upon what else you're serving in your restaurant, there's a possibility that you could get something on the, the block that would cross-contaminate and, and somebody could get sick. So just, I mean, all in all, I think not a best practice. Um, obviously, I don't think, you know, it's not, it's not like that every time you do this, you're going to get sick. But uh, yeah, not, not a best practice. What if, okay, I'm going to send you, I did a little bit of digging on this because mm-hmm. I thought about the same thing. These salt blocks are pretty expensive. Yep. Um, and so disposable may not be uh, super practical. And once you put them into traditional cleaning and sanitizing, you you end up with, um, I, I would think some degradation of that block. Um, I, I don't know what a quad sanitizer would do. You know, so say we put this into a three compartment sink or a low temperature dishwash, whatever it is, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think they're, they're probably not going to work with that. But, um, I, as I looked a little bit about this, Mark, Mark Bitterman, um, not Mark Bittman, uh, but there's a, a guy, a food writer, Mark Bitterman, who, uh, has wrote a cookbook about salt block cooking. And one of the things that he talks about is how they are very, um, uh, resistant to, to temperature change. You can freeze them. You can heat it. What if you did a wet, like this, that wiping process, right? And d- had some, some wet, um, you know, some water, uh, as part of that wipe and then just baked it. Do you think that would, would satisfy the, the reuse? I mean, without any data, just obviously not, you know, just a pure speculation. What do you think about that? Well, so on the one hand, that's great, and I think that it might work. On the other hand, we know that salt um, lowers water activity, and we know that organisms are more resistant when they're heated in a low water activity environment. And so I know that you're, um, you know, before you asked me the question, you said, you know, within the absence of data, my first reaction is going to be, well, let's get some data, right? Yeah. Uh, This (laughs) would be, you know, this would be a perfect uh, thing to do if you you had access to a test kitchen where you could, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily obviously want to bring salmonella into your test kitchen, but you could do some uh, experiments maybe with uh, surrogate organisms on little tiny salt blocks in the laboratory where you you could have a, a small oven. Um, yeah, I mean, it's potentially uh, an interesting uh, remediation that might work. All right. Also, um, let's link yet again to uh, We Want Plates. Uh, one of my favorite Facebook uh, um, uh, destinations that uh, Carol Wallace, our friend, uh, uh, hooked me on to a few years ago when she was visiting. Um, and I, I can't imagine how much better my uh, in, you know, from the Mark Bitterman, uh, link, I think one of the things that he talked about is a watermelon and feta salad on a salt block. I <laughs> yeah. don't, I don't know how much better that my watermelon and feta salad is on, if it was just on a plate. I uh, don't know, you know, and, and of course, yeah. So the subtitle, the, the title is the book. Well, I guess they're promoting a book now. Uh, we want plates. So the subtitle is the crusade against food on slates, chips in mugs and drinks in jam jars. 
Yeah. And if you look, if you just scroll down uh, today, they add uh, once, usually every couple of days, there's a new one. And so the first <laughs> one at the top is a bread basket that's made out of Lego. Um, and then as we go further down, my, my absolute favorite one that's on the front page right now is a clipboard that has a bunch of charcuterie on it. Um, and it, with the, uh, with, with the uh, caption of no tasting menu is complete without some meat on a clipboard. Oh my God. Yeah, this is, I, I, this is, this is, this is, this is fantastic. I, I want to look at this website every day. Yeah, it's, it's really good. Um, cool. So, um, uh, so there we've got that, um, just some, some follow up um, uh, as well on, um, uh, uh, Jay Kenji, who we've talked about in a couple of podcasts now, cause Don got on a Twitter fight with him. Um, and, uh, <laughs> still haven't done my homework, but anyway. no, and I, I me either. Um, and, uh, so, uh, we, from a listener who is uh, a friend of the friend of the podcast, uh, Michelle Daniluk, who didn't say anything about don't tell anybody anything. So I will mention her name. Uh, she said, I'm watching the chef you quote fought with on Twitter on the food network. There's lots of cross contamination with his raw chicken handling. <laughs> so, so, uh, and we will, uh, maybe try and find the link to the, uh, I, I couldn't find the video, uh, that, that Michelle talked about, but it was a, a show that was on the, the food network. So, no, um, but we'll 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 link to Michelle's page at the University of Florida. Uh, please please don't please don't email her. <laughs> no, don't don't tweet at her about stuff. Uh, <laughs> hey, can, let's let's talk a little bit about double dipping, okay? Oh yes. So uh, this says uh, you can read my message, but not my name. Um, uh, and I, I'm going to call I'm going to call this listener uh, single dip chip, um, uh, not because his name is Chip. His name is something else, but it begins with the same letter. So. Um, so he says, uh, so I'm a new listener to your show after Don's stellar appearances on Dubai Friday. Thank you for that. Uh, Chip. M- much appreciated. Uh, I love that show. Uh, was th- hoping to do an in-studio appearance. Um, that may or may not happen. Um, but anyway, keep posted. I'll keep you guys posted for that. So, um, so uh, Single Dip Chip says, I've been enjoying learning about this new to me topic, food safety, that I haven't ever consciously thought about before. So that's that's fantastic. So uh, he says, I have a question that is partly food safety related and maybe part social relational. We love these. Uh, that's our, this that's our like, spot. That's like that's like the, when the car talk guys get get a call from somebody that uh, that really it's talking it's it's ostensibly about cars, but it's really about relationships. So um, uh, so uh, Single Dip Chip uh, writes, I have long been a proponent of not double dipping, sharing utensils, or other spit swapping endeavors with anyone who is not a committed romantic partner. Yeah. There you go. Good one. Good one. Um, my uh, spouse's family like is committed romantic partner to them. To, like, yeah. Not yeah. Not to any, not just to anyone. Right. Okay, yes. Okay. To each other. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, got it. Got it. Uh, my spouse's family does not subscribe to my same view, so I'm faced with people putting utensils into common food dishes when we're all eating together at the same table. Uh, yeah, I think about this all the time. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't describe myself as germophobic, but I, I'm germ aware, right? I am thinking about this kind of stuff all the time. So, uh, hence, I guess, uh, uh, doing this podcast. Um, so I'm faced with people putting utensils into common when we're all at the same table, um, uh, using some, someone using the spoon to clean off the ice cream scoop, uh, said scoop goes back into the ice cream container, um, 
Yeah, or eating something with a, an already used utensil and then passing along the platter to the next person, uh, licking the peanut butter knife before sticking it back in the peanut butter. Yeah, that's for sure. That's a big red flag for me. Um, kind of drives me crazy, even though my spouse understands my position and has shared it with their family a couple of times. Hey, maybe it's better if we just grab another clean spoon to help dish out the ice cream. Um, uh, the behavior is deeply ingrained in the spouse's family uh, and therefore thus continues. Um, uh, uh, single dipship writes, I simply observe when this is happening and then try to avoid eating something after it's been uh, sullied in this way. Sullied, what a great word. Um, <laughs> I'm aware it is, uh, anyway, it's, uh, I, this is, yeah, it's just, so it's just, it's, it's it basically, he's, he's reached his breaking point. It's kind of going to be impossible. So is there, so the question, uh, is it real and is it, is there a real and measurable risk to my spouse's family behavior, a risk to, to him? Uh, or am I just paranoid? Any tips for communicating? So I'm going to let you think about the communicating aspect. Um, I am going to talk about what the science says. And so, um, uh, so the, the, the short answer without looking at the literature is it's gross, but the risk is relatively small. If, and, and, and again, the distinguishing feature here is between generic germs and specific germs, right? And so if nobody in the family is infectious, um, it, does it really matter if their germs get um, you know, onto you or vice versa, and the, the the short answer is probably the risk is 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 no, right? Because they're not infectious. Um, the research base on the topic is small. Uh, Paul Dawson, um, who we've talked about before, my colleague at Clemson, uh, Paul, and uh, has a, a regular uh, undergraduate class that will investigate these various uh, issues um, from time to time. Um, uh, and so he's investigated the five-second rule uh, several years before we did it in my lab, and he actually published his, his work, so good good on you, Paul. Um, he's investigated the risks of blowing out uh, birthday candles, uh, and we'll link to that article. Um, he has looked at the risk of double-dipping uh, chips, and we'll link to that article. Uh, that w- uh, article is available on the Internet, and so we'll, 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 we'll link to the PDF. And then also bacterial transfer from... Uh, hands while eating popcorn. Um, now, interestingly, um, I think Paul, and I don't think Paul listens to the show, and he is also uh, not too discriminatory when it comes to getting this work published. And I think he's published in some questionable journals or quasi-predatory journals. So because I, I the reason why I know that is I routinely get invited to write articles for these journals. And so I put them into my spam filter. And my own message back to uh, Single Dip Chip uh, went to the spam filter. I think in part because I linked <laughs> to one of those um, uh, specific uh, websites that is predatory. So um, the bottom line with the specific chip study, and I, this seems a little, I mean, I've looked at the methods and they look okay. Um, but the, the, what the what the chip study shows is that basically before you uh, put any uh, double dip chips in, there are uh, a fairly low level of bacteria in the salsa or whatever. And then after you double dip the chip and you test the salsa, you find, you know, like several orders of magnitude, three orders of magnitude, more bacteria. So what that means is that there are thousands, basically bottom line, thousands of bacteria being transferred from the mouth via the chip back into the salsa. That sounds kind of high to me. 
Um, uh, but obviously, you know, I mean, I didn't, again, I looked at the, it's, it's published in the peer reviewed literature. I looked at the methods, not in excruciating detail, but in close enough detail that it seemed to be legit. Um, so, you know, uh, there are thousands of bacteria that get transferred. Now, those bacteria are not pathogens, right? Those are bacteria that are normally present in our mouth. I suppose if somebody has uh, gingivitis or other gum disease, there's a possibility of transferring that kind of disease to you. Um, but are you likely to get sick? I, the, the short answer is no. Um, so that's kind of my take. Do you have, uh, do you have a perspective, Ben? Uh, and also... Do you have any communication uh, advice for uh, Chip? I do, I do. Um, so I wonder a, a couple things. As I, as I looked at the um, at, at the paper, I wonder how much time was a factor here, right? So so growth. Um, I also wondered about um, how and and this this comes back to some of the things that you and I have talked about um, when it comes to norovirus, where having somebody there who is sick might matter. And how much like slippage might happen in a chip dipping kind of situation where maybe transfer isn't always um, from the chip, you know, mouth to chip and then chip to to salsa, but from finger directly into salsa. And that's a dipping issue, not a double dipping issue. Right. Well, so so let me let me stop you right there and say if you look at figure one of the, the double dipping experiment, um, they basically uh, do uh, three dips and six dips, okay, with an unbitten chip and with a bitten chip. And, and there is some level from the unbitten chip, but there's much higher, again, let's say, yeah, 100-fold more two log higher or more with the bitten chip, three dips mm. and six dips. So, and that is uh, also no with no time. That's essentially time zero. Time yeah, when, okay. they, when they looked at uh, extended time periods, um, they found, um, depending upon the pH of the dip, a decline. And so uh, at a pH of a dip at a pH of four, you had a couple orders of magnitude decline. Um, pH of five, it's maybe a one log reduction, pH six, essentially no change. And so the, the acidic dips have a protective effect over time, but, but the time zero, uh, for sure you get, you get some, some transfer and they did seem to control for the fingertip, um, effect. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, so to, yeah, that that was uh, my. That's all I got. Communication advice. Oh yeah, yeah. Communication advice. So um, that it's gross, um, and, and, but if it comes down to a risk situation, we do lots of things that I like. I, my kids are dirty, and I don't want their hair in their <laughs> in my food. Um, and I want. I, it's more of a yuck factor kind of situation. But is it going to increase with the likelihood that I'm going to get um, get sick? Probably not. There, there was um, an outbreak linked to chips, uh, a common chip bowl, a norovirus outbreak um, in um, at a wedding a few years ago. And let me see if I can find that. But I think that the thought in that situation, again, was not about – it was about people putting their hands in um, and the person who had filled the chip bowl being a uh, – being recovering from norovirus. Uh, and using their hands to to um, to fill that bowl. So yeah, it's not so- so I, Chips. yeah, yeah. So I found it's it's on the NoroCore. At least there's an article on the NoroCore website. The headline is "One Confirmed and One Suspected Norovirus Outbreak at Two Restaurants in Washington State." 
Um, uh, and so that, uh, that may be the, uh, that may be the, the, the particular, um, situation. And, you know, I was thinking about this, maybe, maybe Chip, maybe the way that you approach this is you say, Hey, you know, I've been listening to this food safety podcast and these two guys on the podcast were talking about this scientific research. And that scientific research showed that when you double dip chips, it, contaminates the salsa with thousands of bacteria, right? And that's a kind of a, you're kind of playing on naivete a little bit. Um, yeah. but, but that may, but, but, the, but if they know if they, again, we, you, and you can not even have a discussion about risk and, and all of that, but just, just simply, Hey, did you know that double dipping chips contaminates, uh, the, the dipping sauce with thousands of bacteria? I read it on, I heard <laughs> it on a podcast and it's based on peer reviewed research, right? So again, that's playing a little bit fast and loose with the science, but, but it's not untrue, right? So, so maybe, right. I mean, again, it depends on how you feel about, um, your, your partner's family and, you know, how much you want to, you know, get into it with them. So, well, and let's let, let on the same way, let me, let's segue to, um, a video that, uh, our friend of the podcast, Linda Harris sent us, um, that about spoilage and food and best buy use by and sell by dates where I think they did a little bit of, you know, acting a little loose and fast with the, with the data. Um, especially with a comment we'll, we'll link to this. This was from, I think it's called Sci Sci start Sci star. Um, it's a YouTube video. I had it all ready to talk about, and I think I lost it. Um, anyway, they, they basically talk about, um, while you're probably not going to catch anything life-threatening from drinking spoiled milk, you can catch some brutal food poisoning, uh, which is a really odd, um, uh, message. To, it's an, to it's an odd message. Yes. Yeah. And, and as I viewed the, the video, they, uh, sort of talk about, um, you know, smelling, uh, spoilage and how that, that could lead to someone getting, getting sick from quote food poisoning. Um, so, and I'm going to jump off of that to another area of, uh, uh um, uh, I, I want to talk about food poisoning, <laughs> Don. Okay. Uh, and I, I, I am similar to some of the conversations we've had on in the past on using correct terms. Um, I, I've been really, uh, critical and helping people who are writing, uh, press releases and other communication messages around foodborne illness to move people away from quote food poisoning, mm. um, from, from a couple of reasons. One is I, there, there, the, I think the argument on one side is, well, let's just call it food poisoning. Cause everyone knows what food poisoning is. Yep. And, and I, I think that the, the other like perception knowledge argument on the other side of that is, yeah, except everyone also knows what the 24 hour flu is. Uh, you know, that's a, a common, uh, term that's used. And just by like tossing that around and not calling it norovirus or gastrointestinal illness or whatever, I think changes practices. Um, and, and again, anecdotally, not something that we, that I have data on, but, um, the, the issue just from a correctness standpoint is I look at food poisoning as, as being, um, like a food intoxication, something where you're, um, you know, classic food poisoning that CDC talks about would be something like perfringens or staph aureus toxin, where you have a really quick onset of, 
uh, of uh, symptoms after consumption, and it misses this whole other area of foodborne illness where it may take 24, 48, 72 hours on, you know, with with some pathogens longer on on others. And so, um, someone who's a, one of our Twitter um, followers uh, sent me a, a DM about this based on some Canadian messaging around food poisoning. And he was like, so what do you think about this? And my thoughts are, I think we should just call it foodborne illness and we should explain to people the the differences like that that foodborne illnesses in the Venn diagram is the big circle and food poisoning is a little circle within that Venn diagram. And, and, and that coming back to the communication side of things, engaging in that in that conversation is a much I think has a much more merit in changing behaviors as opposed to just defaulting to everyone knows what food poisoning is. So why don't we just call foodborne illness food poisoning? So I don't know. What do you what do you think? Yeah, you know, I waffled and, and I think you 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 highlighted it well. Everybody calls it food poisoning, so maybe we should. Um, people ask me what I do, um, and my my stock answer now, and it has been for several years, is we study food poisoning and how to prevent it. Um, uh, just because it's a little bit easier to say than we study foodborne disease and how to yeah. prevent it, or foodborne illness and how to prevent it. Um, so it, I guess I, I, I sort of come down on the let's call it food poisoning because that's what everybody calls it. But but for sure I totally get that it is not poisoning, right? Like it is like poisoning is a misnomer, like tomain poisoning, right? It's not right. it's not a term that we use anymore. There isn't a, like poisoning, like poisoning really refers to a toxin. And yes, there can be foodborne um, microorganisms that make toxins, Staphylococcus bacillus, etc. And so it is a it is really a poisoning because or a Clostridium botulinum. It really is a toxin toxin that you are ingesting. But for most of these, it's actually an infection and not uh, not an intoxication. So, but that, you know, once you start talking like that, people, they don't want to hear it. Right. So. Yeah. And, and I think it's how we use it, in what context we use it and in what situation matters. Right. Like I, I, I you, just like you were saying before, it's not incorrect to say that you study food poisoning because you do study some of the foodborne illness causing pathogens that cause intoxication. Yes. Right. So, so that one, like, yeah, I, I wouldn't, um, I, I, that, that is not all you do, but that's one of the things that, that you do. But, but um, when I, but when I say food poisoning, I'm really referring you know, to, you know, the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I see. I see what you're saying. I, I think in my, most of my food safety, uh, interactions with the public come in, in hockey arenas, Hmm. Um, whether it's with people that guys that I play with or, uh, parents of, of kids that my kids play with. And those conversations are, are not tweets, right? Like they're, that, that is a, a back and forth dialogue where, where I have more time and context and, and sometimes people's eyes glaze, glaze over. Uh, but then I throw in jokes, um, to, to try and uh, alleviate that. But I would, if I was, if I'm putting myself into uh, a government agency, and this is where the that DM came from, it was something that came from Health Canada or a public health agency or wh- whoever it was. If I'm putting myself into their position, I would want to call it foodborne illness, and I want to take the time to describe those differences because my my job is not just to get a message out and in 280 characters. It's it's to try and have better understanding, um, and 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 that. what it does if you don't do that is you've got the, some of the people that are 
going to be advocates for those messages. Um, like I don't know, snickering is probably not the right word, but, but looking down and being like, you know, that's not the right, that's not the right term. Like we, we don't call it the E. coli virus, right? Oh gosh, don't even get me started. Um, yeah. So I got an email the other day from, uh, one of our County agents who was contacted by a company that, that has, a uh, something that they can apply to produce that will, um, uh, stop E dash coli. So, yeah. yeah. And I guess with, with respect to the interacting with the public thing, um, you know, my, my entree is, yeah, we study food poisoning in my lab and how to prevent it. Um, and then most of the time they're like, oh, that's interesting. Um, and then the conversation's over. Right. But occasionally it's, oh, like, like that thing that's going on right now, um, with listeria. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly right. That's, and and then, and so, you know, if there is something going on in the news and they're interested or they've heard about something, then that at least my saying that in a way that they understand can open up the dialogue um, in such a way that, okay, now they feel like they can ask me questions, right? Or that we can have a discussion about something that they've been wondering about or that they've been thinking about. And then, and then it's, and then we're off to the races, right? And, yeah. and, and that's, and that's fine. And that's really, that's all I'm looking for is like a simple way to describe like what I do in the world. And then if, and if they're not interested or they don't really understand even what I said, then that's fine. But if they're the kind of person that's, you know, curious, then it's, it's a, it's a opening into the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Uh, yeah, it's a good, that's a good point. Um, okay. So, so, uh, yeah, Yeah. so we're, we're cruising down this list. So, um, yeah, so, uh, uh, somebody asked, um, and I don't have the original, I don't typically if there's something in here that's, that I tag as feedback or follow up, um, and it doesn't, uh, and I don't have the actual email. It means that it came in via some other means like like Twitter, and there's not always a good way to capture it. And so uh, I did get a question recently about um, uh, home fermentation. Yep. And uh, I found a, a K-State uh, slash University of Missouri uh, fact sheet on safely fermenting food at home. Um uh, how, do you remember? Because I think I, I think I uh, looped you into the discussion. Do you remember what the triggering context was, or do you have any thoughts on home uh, food safety when it comes to fermentation? Oh, do I ever? I think the original trigger was a, a Twitter conversation about kombucha. I think you're right. Yes, um, and I can't remember who who it was uh, with, but yeah, I do. This is an area that. It, from the um, family consumer science agents that that I support, that my program supports, um, and the area specialized agents that that work on my team, fermentation science and and fermentation safety at home in in a probiotic type um, focus is something that um, is we we are getting more and more questions in in need. It's it's an area that we kind of defined as we need to get better training and information in the hands of our agents because they're getting lots of questions about it. And then we need to develop some programming on doing this safely. And that's exactly where, where we're at over the last five or six months, we've been working on, um, uh, program materials. And the, the, the thing that you link to, um, safely fermenting at home from K-State and University of Missouri, um, is, is a nice starting point, but I want to um, put a plug into um, Marissa Bunning um, at uh, Colorado State because I think she probably has the the best work in this area. 
Um, she's done some, some work on validating recipes and I can't find it, uh, right now. Uh, but I will, uh, get the links for, um, for the show notes, but on kimchi, uh, specifically looking at a, a validated recipe using the same process that, um, that, uh, uh, Elizabeth Andrus at the university of Georgia and the national center for home food preservation uses to validate those, the, the recipe. Um, and, uh, I, I think she's she's doing probably the most uh, work out out there on this. Kimchi is one that I also get a lot of questions about um, from the food service standpoint. And and what I do is is um, I, two things. One, I send them to um, to Marissa's stuff, but then also um, uh, Joelle Eifert at uh, Virginia Tech. She does quite a bit of work on validating uh, fermentation recipes, whether it's kombucha or um, or or kimchi. Um, I, the, I think the easy situation here that, that many folks are, I think are defaulting to, um, as I look through the extension world is ferment all you want and then do heat treatment afterwards. Um, but that misses the reason why people want to do fermentation, which is for probiotics. And that's really why I like the approach that Marissa has taken, which is, um, go ahead and, and um, and do this, uh, and, but, but follow these, follow, follow these specific recipes. Um, we, uh, we're, we're in the midst of, uh, it won't be by the time we, uh, publish this podcast, but we're in the midst of, of creating a section on our food safety portal at foodsafety.ces.ncsu.edu that we can link to that, that talks about fermentation with some, some additional fact sheets to, to pull some of this stuff together. Um, and, um, yeah, the, the traditional stuff, and this is in the, uh, Kansas state university of Missouri, um, material is there's lots of recipes for dill pickles and sauerkraut where things get exciting and are, are in other areas. Um, and, and, and people are, are ferment wanting to ferment lots of different things as like a, an addendum, I guess, to this conversation, something came across my, uh, Twitter, um, sphere, uh, while we were in Michigan actually around, um, uh, ferment while well, live soda. Uh, I don't know if you saw the comments, uh, on this, but there is, uh, someone who is actually a, a TV personality here in Raleigh went to a, a grocery store and I don't know which one it was, but they're, uh, t- uh, tweeted, um, cans of, of live soda that is with probiotics. Um, and so I sent that out to the Twitter sphere saying, um, hey, you know, can anybody talk about how this actually works? And there's a nice asterisk that, uh, just Chen pointed out that we start with a billion bacteria and who knows how much is left, uh, once you open your soda can. So, um, probiotics and, and fermentation, I think, uh, are areas that people are really, really interested in. Um, and, and there's not a, a whole lot of, um, great science. Oh, one other person that we haven't talked about is Fred Bright, who holds, um, this massive, uh, website, uh, database, just a, a bibliography of fermentation and acidified pickle, uh, food, food safety. And, and Fred, Fred's really interesting in conversations I've had with him about fermentation. Um, he, he, he gives a, um, an, an interesting, answer. And in fact, it's quoted in the art of fermentation, uh, by Sandor Katz, uh, in, in the like back page or as, you know, kind of like, 
um, the, the, the advertising material, which is, um, fermented foods, um, have never been linked to any illnesses, have never made anybody sick. And I challenged Fred a little bit on that. I was like, Fred, what do you mean by this? Cause I can, you, you've shared outbreaks with me with fermented foods and he goes, well, the real quote is properly fermented foods have never been linked to, to outbreaks lightly fermented or incomplete fermentation foods have been linked. Um, but that's not really what it says. Sure. That's uh, like saying properly, uh, properly thermally processed foods have never caused botulism. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. Yes. That of is course. Correct. Yeah. So, um, so we, I mean, there are, um, there are lots of, uh, of examples of quote fermented foods or what people think are fermented, lightly fermented. Uh, I tell a story, um, uh, in w- when I do, um, training for, uh, HACCP plans and variances and, and kimchi and fermented foods comes up, um, about, um, a, uh, an outbreak that happened in Japan, which was, uh, a kimchi that was served to, uh, school kids. And the um, feedback from schools, sort of how the story kind of goes, is feedback from schools is they didn't really want really salty, really tangy kimchi uh, for uh, school kids. So they had a low, lower salt fermentation and not a full, uh, really, really tangy, high acid uh, kimchi. And turns out that that led to uh, pathogenic E. coli. So. Yeah, ex- exactly. That's uh, yes. That's that would that would make sense. Uh, that would be a not not a best. There's a reason why these things are very salty and very acidic, and right. It's like it's like well, you know, we wanted to make some beef jerky, but it was a little too dry and a little too tough, and so we 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 didn't heat it very much. It's like well, yes, that's not going to work. Uh, you're going to make somebody sick or something. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, hey, so I found I found a website for this company called Live Soda, which is uh, matches the screenshot that you sent to me. It's a quite an interesting um, website. It's very nice looking. Um, they have um, something that they call drinking vinegars. So they have oh, four yeah. flavors of drinking vinegars. They have five flavors of soda, including one flavor called Doctor, and then they have a, a whole bunch of flavors of kombucha, including again uh, one f- labeled uh, flavored Doctor. Um, I really wonder what Doctor flavored kombucha tastes like lemon lime cola doctor root beer and ginger sodas and uh, blueberry lemon lime ginger root beer doctor cola orange and raspberry flavored kombucha so maybe it's like uh, it's supposed to be dr pepper i but it's guess yes. dr probiotic doctor um, yeah i i mean i don't know we this goes back to the cold brew um death wish coffee conversation that we've had in the past I just don't know how you go through the canning process, like making t- you know can- soda cans um, with uh, with live probiotics at the end of it. <laughs> like, like I, I get the bottling of kombucha. I, I know that there's a poss- possibility on how to do that uh, with, but the canning process, I just don't get it. So, yes, uh, I, I yeah. think you're going to kill it all. I, I I think there's no way to do it uh, without killing it all. So. Good and and you and you just sent me a link to uh, Marissa Bunning's uh, webpage on understanding and making kimchi, which is great. We'll link to her main page and then to this page as well as a bunch of the other stuff that we talked about. Yeah, yeah. And and just before we leave this, I think one of the things like what I love about what um what what Marissa put together on this on this kimchi is she can't you know she's like or you know her group came up with here here's the equipment here are the ingredients it's it, it, there's a lot of um. Uh, a lot of aspects here where people want to get really creative with kimchi and the the thing is okay but 
but don't do it like don't 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 do that like follow the recipe just like we we talk about with other acidified foods the the process here is um with fermentation you you can't can't start adding weird stuff into into here and i'd say weird in a in a nice in a nice way but things that may change the fermentation uh process um and and you know whatever whatever that might be you know this is this becomes the validated process that I would point people towards and say here make some make some kimchi this way right and you know and I just just was got back from teaching a little while ago teaching a better process control school and we talk about process authorities and we talk about the scheduled process and the same thing is true with this and I guess and and certainly when we give advice to consumers you know uh, the historically it's always been look you must do it this way exactly you must not change this recipe in any way. And that's the standard process authority language. I guess what I would like to see is um, validated recipes that say, look, here are the things that you can't change, but here Mm. are the things that you could change. Now, that's, again, that goes right in the face of the advice that we give, um, you know, in better process school, you thou shalt change nothing, right? Right, Um, right. And and again, and I know it makes extension people really uncomfortable um, to talk about recipes that people can modify. But it would be nice to know, like, what's the what's the amount of play that we have in this recipe? Like, what could we change? And and again, I I, I get like you can't give people blanket advice. But anyway, this well, is a really this is a really good start. This looks like a really good um, recipe. Uh, definitely a place to start if you wanted to start making uh, kimchi. Yeah. And I would I would say that the there's a group that gets together uh, a couple times a year on home food preservation um, of extension folks. We'll we'll meet I'm I'm sure at IAFP uh, in a couple of weeks, and and that's one of the what you brought up is one of the things that that we've discussed in new recipe development going forward is being able to to use those optional things. And one of the things that um, Elizabeth and Judy at uh, National Center for Home Food Preservation have done a really good job with is saying things like if you want to add dried spices to this acidified food, go for it right like like add add some celery salt or whatever it is you want to want to want to do that's not going to change the um the acidification for this the these types of recipes start adding in fresh basil and and you know two-thirds of your jar of uh you know uh, extra peppers that that's a little different situation but uh when it comes to dried spices you do have some some options um so yeah it's uh it, um, it's a it's a great um it's a great area and another one sim, you know similar to share tables another area where there's lots of questions and and i like that there are lots of different paths that people can take so but yeah good stuff um well, that was our follow-up show, Don. What it was. Else? Yeah, I, I, that was uh, all I, uh, all I really wanted to to talk about was hit all that stuff. Yeah, I, I think the only only thing I would add is um, uh, a recommend. Oh, you know, actually, there's a couple of things that I that I want to talk about that are not. Uh, that are not food safety related um, or that are a little bit food safety related. So one is um, we did get a message um, from regular listener and emailer uh, Deep Crimson who uh, talks about um, just a concern about cinnamon coming from Vietnam because of the defoliants uh, applied there uh, during the uh, Vietnam War. And uh, uh, what made me think about this was uh, in in, uh, their message, uh, they talk about 
um, uh, a book, uh, the book entitled uh, JFK by Fletcher Prouty. Um, and there's uh, an online site for free books, which made me think about books, which made me think about uh, a present that uh, my uh, my younger son uh, gave me for a Father's Day, which is a wonderful book that I will definitely promote here uh, called All the Pieces Matter, um, which is about the wire. Awesome. And, um, uh, and, and so that book uh, is sitting on my nightstand. Um, but uh, I am really bad about reading books these days because... I just get distracted by my phone and my attention span is about the length of a magazine article or a tweet. Um, but I really, really wanted to read this book. And so I did two things. Um, one, uh, I've all caught up on my podcast listening. And so I went ahead and got this book as an audio book. And so uh, I reactivated or activated my Audible membership. Um, and so I've got a, a month free on, on Audible. And so I'm using that to uh, read the book slash listen to the book. And the other thing that I did, um, and this was based on some advice or some some commentary on a recent episode of uh, ATP, uh, Accidental Tech Podcast, where they were, where Syracuse was talking in particular about uh, Kindles versus iPads as reading devices uh, and about how good they are in bright sunlight. And I'm like, you know, I maybe as a way to, to read um, more books, I should, and also get away from Twitter and the you know, other social media, I should just get uh, a Kindle. And so I sprung for a Kindle uh, Paperwhite. And uh, so uh, there's a couple of uh, free books on there that I've uh, downloaded. Um, and uh, I may also invest in this uh, book, All the Pieces Matter, um, on, on Kindle as well. But it's really, if you're at all a fan of The Wire, uh, this is basically, the, it's it billed as the inside story of The Wire, um, where the author went out and interviewed a bunch of people during the making of the show and, and uh, you know, kind of like what they thought about it, people at HBO, people who are actors, cinematographers, um, casting directors. And it's just it's it's really interesting. Hmm, cool. So you like your paper white? Uh, I do so far. I love the way it looks. It's it's annoying because no matter what, um, there's an ad on the front page, which you can't make go away. Um, uh, which is always being generated because of the the nature of the the e ink that they use, um, and that's just really, really, really annoying. That I so I have to like put it face down, and every time I look at it, it, it irritates me a little bit. But um, uh, but I love the screen. I love the way it looks. Uh, I may um, I may. Uh, get the new uh, book from the Pod Save America guys, which I was intending to get uh, before, but uh, called uh, Yes, We Still Can. Um, uh, and so I may get that on uh, on um, my uh, my Kindle as well. So, yeah. Well, there you go. Cool. Well, I... Uh I've been I've I've been switching back and forth between a couple of different iPads, and I'm using my iPad Mini, the fourth generation Retina one, a lot, and reading a bunch on it. So I, but this this is this intrigues me. So maybe I'll uh, I'll take a look at one of these too. Yeah, it's um you know as a way of getting distraction free reading, especially in the sunlight. Especially, I mean, the thing about you know iPads and and iPhones and stuff is I have to charge those pretty much every day. Whereas the idea with the Kindle is you can just literally charge it very, very sporadically, like, you know, and it'll just hold the charge for a long time. I mean, it's not, it's not a really super responsive display, but again, if you're mostly just reading static, uh, text, 
Um, it's not going to replace my, my phone or my iPad and certainly not, uh, my iPad for reading comics because, uh, you know, those are in color and the Kindle is only black and white, but for just simply, you know, reading a book, which is just, again, I just was sort of lamenting the fact that I just don't read books anymore. And that's kind of sad. And I should, I should read books and all the integration, uh, the integration with Goodreads is very nice. So I don't know if you know how much you know about Goodreads, but it's basically a reading tracking service and, and social network. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and so that might be, uh, again, a good way to kind of, um, uh, get, so uh, just an excuse to kind of get me to read a book. <laughs> yeah. You know? Hey, can't go, can't go wrong with that. Um, awesome. Well, uh, I think that's a show. That's all I had. All right. Well, Don, um, good, good stuff. Glad to be back in the, uh, studio a here. Um, as much fun as it is seeing you in person and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that, uh, in the after show, I guess, uh, about, uh, doing something. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, we will, uh, I'll, I'll see you in a couple of weeks, uh, and we'll talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So I have two things for after show. For yes. Um, one thing is when to meet at IAFP. Yes. Um, and I have, so I am not, this is, uh, maybe blasphemous. I'm not staying for the banquet. Okay. Uh, I booked my, uh, um, I booked my flights yesterday and I just, I don't know. I just want to be home. Uh, I understand. It's, it's not like, it's not like you're missing, like my banquet when I was president no. and my after party. So I, quite honestly, I don't care about uh, the other, the yeah, other people. Of course, so. of course not. And it, it, some, sometimes those other people actually listen uh, and they'll, <laughs> they'll hear about it. Um, but uh, in, yeah, I was, I just, we were at one point it, the plan was that everybody was going to come, like the whole family was going to come to Salt Lake city, but we just couldn't make it all work. And with stuff that's going on with kids. And so anyway, yeah, well, um, you, you guys have been traveling a lot and I know it's summertime with uh, young kids. You've got a pretty heavy. Oh, well, let's, let's talk about summer camp and left-handed people in casts too. I got to start yeah. there. <laughs>
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's doing he's doing fine. It was like the greatest thing. So uh, so for the listeners who are still sticking around, Jack, my older son, uh, broke his arm on a hoverboard, which is not a true hoverboard like you would have thought of in uh, uh, Back to the Future Part Two, I think it was. But uh, it's this uh, scoot. It's, it's a scoot 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 scoot. Yeah, which I told Danny about, and then we just called it, kept calling it Scoot Scoot, uh, which goes really re- well on the grass, um, goes well on concrete, except Jack hit some gravel and the Scoot Scoot stopped and he continued forward and he put his arm down and, and uh, broke it. And this was on Saturday and we drove home Saturday evening and all day Sunday. Um, and he was like, he thought, oh, I might be feeling better. And then it didn't get any better. So we took him to the uh, doctor and or uh, on Monday and yeah, he broke his, uh, it's a very, a very good break. Uh, it is a green stem buckle on his, uh, right radius. Um, and he has a cast, uh, above his elbow until next Thursday and then a shorter cast probably for another, uh, three weeks after that, but he'll be, he'll be ready for hockey season, which was his main concern. And he can swim with his cast on and it's his right arm and he's a lefty. So he doesn't really care. Yeah, so so funny story. So I, when I was young, uh, I broke my. I'm also left-handed. I broke my right arm um, shortly before summer camp, um, and I I knew I was playing touch football. And uh, Leif uh, Leif Harrower, who was a, a jerk, pushed me, and uh, and and of course, as soon as I started thinking about that, I had to go on to the internet. And uh, apparently, uh, Leif, I know he's not a listener, but he's a building contractor in uh, in uh, Taos, New Mexico, but and doing okay. So I wish him well. Um, um, I and I guess I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, he did, he definitely did it on purpose. Um, but uh, yeah, so, uh, so I, I knew I broke it. Um, uh, and, uh, but I got a cast and it was, it was at the time waterproof casts, fiberglass casts were like very innovative. Um, and I did get, I did get a waterproof cast. Um, and I, that was the most, the, mostly it was not so I could necessarily go swimming, but at least so I could like, you know, take a shower and it could get wet and stuff, which back in the day of plaster casts, uh, you couldn't do any of that. So it was a good, good cast to take to summer camp. So, so tell your son, uh, yeah, I've, I've been there and uh, done that. I, I went to the hospital right away. I knew I had definitely broken it, so I didn't try to tough it out like him. But uh, anyway, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad he's doing okay. I'm glad he's got a cool, uh, cool cast, and uh, he's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna be all right. Yeah, he's gonna be, he's gonna be totally fine. Um, all right. So, what, uh, what, what does your schedule look like on Wednesday, June 11th? Uh, it's wide open. And in fact, I've already gotten an email. We've got him very well trained. I've already gotten an email from David Tharp who says, hey, would you guys like a room on Wednesday? Because awesome. you've done that in the past. And so um, uh, the only, I've got several, I've got uh, posters going on that day. Um, and uh, there is a technical talk uh, that uh, my friend from Brazil, Marcy, is giving. And I think my name is, is on that. Um, but other than that, I am wide open. So any, any time on the 11th would be fine for me. Cool. So I have, um, I, I'm on a round table, uh, or maybe I'm on, I don't know if I'm on it. Panelists. No, I'm not. I'm convening. Uh, no, I was an organizer for a round table that I want to go to. That is, uh, that Matt Moore's put together mm. on the, the gray area of science, predatory publishers. and oh, conferences. I saw, I saw that. And you know, I've done, we've done, uh, round tables on predatory publishers before, and I was really glad to see somebody is keeping that, uh, yeah. discussion alive. And I'm delighted to hear that it's Matt. So that's great. So I, yeah. So that's eight 30 till 10. And then my flight is at three 22. So, so what if we did like 10, 15, what, like 
10 15 or you know 10 30 whatever after after that break is um on uh the 11th and then i you know until until lunchtime that works okay is that that was not when like i was kind of not listening to oh it's is that exactly when that when you want to go to that? No, thing? it's fine. It's fine. Uh, I think I think the 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 technical talk is in the afternoon, so it's t- it's. Totally oh, okay, fine. good. Yep, perfect. Good. Well, and so this is the for the Easter egg for listeners, right? If you are at IAFP and you want to uh, come be on or listen to uh, Don and I talk at IAFP uh, for food safety talk, we will do this uh, like we have in the past. Um, we don't know exactly what the room is. Um, and it will we'll, be one of the smallest rooms off to the side somewhere, but you can, you can, uh, tweet at us or message us in the app and we'll, uh, we'll tell you, uh, yep. yeah, we'll tweet, we'll tweet back at you, uh, yes. and send this out as well. Um, so yeah, so 11 or, uh, 10 30 on uh, Wednesday, July 11th. Cool. Yep. At 10 30 mountain time, 10, 10 30 mountain time. And right. Is it mountain time? I think so. Hey, I think that's two weeks today. That's on our schedule. Oh Bob. man, look at that. Look at that. Nice. Um, all right. So let's do that. Uh, put that in the, my thing here. FST at IAFP. Um, okay. So, uh, are you going to bring a microphone and do you want me to bring my microphone? Yes. And are we going to hassle through this? Uh, thing we always hassle through. Yeah, we're gonna try something. Okay. I wonder if there's a better way to do it that I maybe I'll um investigate um in the next little while. But yeah, bring your microphone, bring your, bring your headphones, and I have splitters and all the other stuff that we need. Cool. Um, and I will bring uh, uh and you'll just make sure you bring a. Oh no, I guess I'm good. I was gonna say bring a dongle, but I've got like a four port USB C. To USB A dongle. So yeah, I'll just my, my the dongle the the USB A to C dongle. It just lives with the microphone now, so I'll I'll, I'll have extra dongles as well. So extra dong- dongles all the way down. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um. So what? Ten thirty Mountain Time. What is that? Is that twelve thirty? Yes. Our time. Yes. There you go. Perfect. All right. Done. Um. Okay, so we have that. Oh, okay. So here's the second thing that I want that I want to talk about that is after show but not real show, so it doesn't go in the show notes. So um, w- the study that we've been working on for observation um, for FSIS, we finished our like year one analysis and we're presenting a bunch of stuff at IAFP. And one of the things – so there, we have a poster on hand washing that uh, an undergraduate student, Lindsay Doring, is going to be presenting. But um, outside of our conversations, um, some of the data has been presented internally at some interagency stuff. And CDC is kind of interested in um, a, a project on hand washing time and because we have all this video data on how long people actually wash their hands in meal preparation in when they're preparing one type of meal. Um, and you've got data on, um, efficacy of hand washing with soap and not soap at different times, 10, 10 seconds and 20 seconds. And I would like to talk to you or think about how we might be able to use the data that you have and maybe create and our like real life 
like hand washing data to create some sort of a model that might show um, risk reduction at different um, at different times that are less than like not as standard as um, you know ten seconds and twenty seconds. And so I don't know if you already have data that would fit that or if we would have to generate some additional stuff. But but CDC is interested in maybe providing some resources to do to do this, at least for us to do the analysis. All we know is um, did someone wash their hands for 20 seconds or yes or no? And it, like the threshold being yes, if it was above 20 seconds and no, if it was less than 20 seconds. But because that's what FSIS had asked us for. So we didn't go and re and code exactly how long. So we're going to go back and look at these 383 um examples in this year and then build this out for year two and three as well to find out what what the time like what the variability looks like in that in that hand washing that sounds really cool i'm in okay so i let me um we're working on sort of costing out resource wise what what it's going to be to go back and recode stuff and then um once once we get that um, I'll shoot you a message on how, like wh- how we might be able to build a model and, and what kind of resources you might need for that or what you already have or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's uh, probably we can do it based on existing data as long as you don't mind kind of ex- extrapolating between the data points, which, uh, right. Yeah. So I, you know, there's not, it's not like, well, we have data on six-second hand washes and 11-second hand washes, and so now we want you to go to the laboratory and do six seconds and 11 seconds, right? It's like you've got a whole range of things, and so what we really want to do is build a model based on existing data that encompasses all the range of things that you saw. Um, And and I think that that's relatively little effort, especially if if there's no fresh data collection, right? It's just a little bit of, um, you know, buying my time or buying a student's time to do some modeling, and it's not not a lot, right? So it's it's a tra- relatively cheap uh, investment. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Well, and I, I'm glad you're interested. I knew you would be when we were talking about it yesterday. I was like, oh, I, I, let me. I, I made a note. I was like, let me let me talk to Don when we talk tomorrow because I, I see that there might be, you know, for the Easter eggs for people who are still listening, but um, that there might be potential if once we once we have this to to think about how this could be used at CFP as well. So we're using like variability in hand washing, like, is there any greater risk reduction at 12 seconds versus eight? Right. Like, like, and that we have this 10 to 15 seconds, this threshold that people absolutely are getting ding dinged on in, um, in inspections, even though it's really hard to inspect for. And that can we get a more realistic or maybe the answer is 20 seconds is the right, right answer. I don't know. Right. Like, whatever. well, and the other thing too, not to get your, to, to dash your hopes, but remember we thought we had, uh, the temperature of the water removed right. because the science indicates that water temperature doesn't matter. And that didn't go anywhere at CFP, but, but yeah, I mean, let's, I'm, I'm, I'm keep fighting the fight. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm like, let's just fight the fight on science. And yep. that makes people from certain regulatory agencies uncomfortable to talk about things that are changing things to be in alignment with the science. Well, I'll just keep saying it and we'll keep doing it. And there's also a big, um, a big company um, uh, who's might have one person who might listen to the show who I've been talking with about doing some work around hand washing around uh, SIFSAN and Cedar. Et cetera, et cetera. Without saying too much, uh, yep. nothing's happened yet, but we're talking, and so yeah. So I'm, we're still, I'm still active and interested in 
the area. And uh, yeah, let's just keep just keep fighting the fight. Cool. Okay. Good. Well, I'll um, we're working on that. We um, in the next couple of days, and they the thing that was like it was a great conversation, um, and the CDC without saying you know, everything about it, they're like, well, we don't, we don't have any money, but we're not afraid to ask for it, especially for something like this that might get us better risk-based messaging. Cool. So, so it wasn't like, yeah, we have a bank account. Um, right, but, right. But, yeah. but it's not like, it's not like we were poor, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's like, yeah, there wasn't a line item for, um, you know, uh, investigating this temp, this, uh, time of hand washing, but maybe we can, uh, can find something. So, um, cool. Okay. Well, I'll get back to you on that. Um, before I see you, in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. Um, so I guess our, we probably aren't going to schedule another one of these until the 11th, right? Yes. Like we'll just, I think uh, that makes sense. Yeah. And that, that is good. Well, all right. Um, so this one's yours and I am still not done the audio. I just haven't listened to the audio to find the show. Like I haven't done anything. Yeah. Yep. Um, but I'll, uh, maybe I'll, I'll try and do that this afternoon. Okay. I'll, I'll get started on this one. Um, and then I'll also contact David to let him know that we want a room, um, from, uh, 10 30 to noon ish on uh, Wednesday, uh, uh, local time. Perfect. All right. I will uh, talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.